Oh Lord, may we behold you today. May we, may we see Christ fully as we come before your word. Let us have ears to hear and hearts to receive the message you have for us this evening. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been continuing our series in Mark, looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the question we're faced with this evening is who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So you may may have noticed that through the beginning of of chapter four last week, we were met with the, the profound teachings of Jesus. And though these parables are, are soaked with the, the wisdom of God and they, they teach some of the most profound mysteries of our faith, I think it would be quite underwhelming if we were to answer the question, who is this man, with simply, he is a great teacher. Though we would be correct, because um, you, you might remember that in, in verses 33 and 34, Jesus taught many parables and most were, were quite mysterious um, so that the people listening couldn't understand. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So Jesus was indeed a great teacher. But in the, in the two events that we're looking at today, I think we're forced to think beyond that. Because no mere teacher is able to command the winds and the waves simply by his words. No mere teacher is able to cast out demons in his own name. So as we approach this passage this evening, we'll see that this great teacher is nothing short of God himself. God incarnate, God creator of all things. He was come down to earth and revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So keep your, your Bibles open at that, that passage, um, Matthew 4. And the first thing we're going to address, the first thing we're going to look at is, is Christ's offer of peace. So Matthew 4, 35. And our, and our passage begins with Jesus and the disciples seeking to get away from the crowds that had been following him, um, that he had been preaching to over the, over the last chapter. And, and so as they climb aboard this boat to make their escape to the other side of the river, and, and as they sail across the river, they're, they're attacked by, by what's described as a, as a furious squall. And now we know that at least seven of the disciples were fishermen. So it's very likely that this storm was, was more than anything they had experienced. So, so as their sails are getting torn up in the wind and the boat is being swamped with water and as they fight through the storm as though death were the only alternative, they look behind them and they see their teacher fast asleep without a care in the world. Now, in case you didn't know, I'm not a fisherman. Um, I have no experience with, with sailing, with dealing with storms or handling a boat. Um, 
However, Vicky and I, during our honeymoon, uh, our anniversary holiday, had the pleasure of visiting Egypt for a week. And we got the chance to go on a boat trip and, and to do some snorkeling in the Red Sea, and it was probably an experience that we'll never forget. But it wasn't all pleasure. Because amid the excitement of being in a country that have never been before, and as I stepped onto the boat with, with my swimming gear in hand and, and my towels in another, I remembered that I have travel sickness. So for the next five hours, as the boat rocked slowly back and forth, I tried my best to keep my eyes on the horizon and not think about the twisting and the turning of my stomach contents. And, and sometimes sleeping is, is meant to help with travel sickness. Um, but the slow rocking of the boat, uh, joined by the fact we were in the middle of the sea with no land at sight, made it way too difficult to sleep. And actually, as we got back to our hotel that night and, and tried to go to sleep, we kept waking up to this phantom feeling of, of the swaying back and forth of the boat. Well, despite the, the calmness of the Red Sea and the comfort of, of a modern boat, sleep was impossible for me. So when I read that Jesus was sleeping during the storm, it was, it was clear to me that the peace Jesus had was beyond my understanding. And even the disciples, most of whom were experienced fishermen, um, they couldn't have come to any conclusion apart from maybe Jesus didn't even care that they drown, care if they drown. So I wonder if you've ever experienced this, this strange kind of peace in the midst of a storm. Have you ever felt such peace from God that those around you wonder if you even cared about the storm that you're in? Have you ever felt so much peace from God that those around you wondered if you had even feared death? Well, this is the kind of peace that is available in Jesus. This is a peace that is anchored in the truth about who Jesus is and the power that he wields. It's not a peace that can be mustered up by our own strength, but can only be found in Christ. See, Jesus slept through this storm because he is the one that has authority over it. Who is he that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is the almighty God, the author of creation. He is the one in which all things were made through. Verse 39 says, He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Creation gave not a moment of resistance. As the seas heard, this familiar voice that spoke it into existence, it had no choice but to obey it. See, I find this quite scary. But I think it's also comforting that the one who has power to calm the storm invites us into the boat with him, to journey with him, 
by faith through the storms of life. A man named Horatio Spafford was a successful attorney and real estate investor in the, in the mid-1800s. And he actually, he built up a fair amount of wealth during this time, up until about 1871. In 1871, an immense fire swept the city of Chicago. A fire now referred to as the Great Fire of Chicago forced its way through the city, killing approximately 300 people and leaving over 100,000 people homeless. This fire wiped out all of Horitio's investment and his real estate portfolio, leaving him without his hard-earned fortune. A couple of years later, he was, um, he was tired from, from work, building back that investment and, and trying to provide for his family. So he thought it was, a, it was a good time to go on a holiday, a holiday to Europe. But he wasn't quite finished with, uh, with tying up his business matters, so he, he sent his family ahead of him, his wife and his four daughters. However, as his wife and four daughters crossed the Atlantic Ocean, the ship they were on collided with another iron ship. 226 people died, including all of Horitio's daughters, aged 12, 7, 4, and a tiny 18-month-old. When Horitio's uh, wife reached Europe, she sent a letter that simply read, saved alone, what shall I do? As soon as Horitio heard of what happened and received the letter, he, he set sail for Europe. And as he passed the shipwreck where his daughters died, he wrote the lyrics to this famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The peace of God reigned in his heart. Even in the midst of a great storm, his eyes were fixed on Christ. May we be such men and women of faith. May we hold fast to Christ as we watch the storms of life batter the sails of our boats. Let me ask you, what, what storm are you in now? 
what situation in your life makes you feel as though you are being battered and, and bruised by the winds and the thunder. Verse 40, Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still, do you still have no faith? The faith that, that Jesus calls us to, the peace that is available in him is it's not one of blind faith. It's a peace that is grounded in Christ Jesus. It's the truth that we are unified with the one who has power over the wind and the waves. The one who knows our current situation and is sovereign over it. It's not, it's not a call to ignore the difficult situations that arise in life, but rather to, to see it through the lens of him who is sovereign over all people and all things. Second thing we'll be, we'll be looking at is uh, Christ's authority over evil. See, I know, I know it's easier said than done, this, this idea of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. And, and the disciples at, at this point may not have witnessed much from Jesus, but they would have certainly heard of the miracles that he had done. But despite that, Jesus still questioned their faith. So it's, it's clearly still early days as they, as they asked that key question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. And, and I'm sure that as this demon-possessed man fell on his knees before Jesus, they started to paint a clearer picture of who Jesus is and, and what he had come to accomplish. So just take a look down at me at, at chapter 5, 1 to, 1 to 6. It reads, they, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> this man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Admittedly, we're, we're not accustomed to witnessing demon possession. Um, even, even if we did witness it, it's probably unlikely we would see a person like this today and, and come to the conclusion that, that uh, he was demon-possessed. But what Mark is describing here is, is both grim and brutal, even for the first century. So if you can picture this, a strong, fully grown man covered in blood, flesh and bones exposed from where he tore himself out of the irons that once held him down. The smell of decomposing flesh from living among the tombs. 
the cries of pain and anguish as he screams at the top of the hills all night and day. There's, there's nothing pleasant about this. However, there's something about Jesus' interaction with this man that, that can actually be easily missed. See, the fact that he was living in the tombs amongst dead corpses makes him not only physically unclean, but spiritually unclean. So a quick look at Numbers 19, 11 to 13. Um, it's on page 156, but, but I'll read it out anyway. It says, whoever touches a human corpse will be unclean for seven days. They must purify themselves with the water, and on the third day and on the seventh day, then they will be clean. If they do not purify themselves on the third and seventh days, they will not be clean. If they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle. They must be cut off from Israel because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them. They are unclean. Their uncleanliness remains on them. This demon-possessed man would have been cut off from Israel. He would have been marked as spiritually unclean and simply interacting with him would have been reason for the Jewish leaders to shun Jesus. So you can imagine the fear that the average person would have felt if approached by this demon-possessed man, the, the fear of catching a disease, maybe the fear of being physically hurt or the fear of being exiled because they interacted with an unclean person. Yet, when the demon-possessed man spots Jesus from afar and, and, and sprints towards him, Jesus doesn't run. And he doesn't flinch out of fear that he might become unclean. Rather, he speaks directly to the impure spirit, commanding it to come out. Verses 6 and 7 says, when, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from a distance... He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. See, like the winds and the waves, these demons recognize the voice that has authority over them. They refer to him as Jesus, son of the most high God. And I, and I think this is a, is a clear example of knowing who Jesus is, but failing to believe and have faith in him. See, it's not simply enough to believe and know Jesus exists. As, as James says in, in the second chapter of his letter, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, faith in Jesus isn't simply an, an intellectual exercise, but a lifestyle of repentance and trusting in him for forgiveness, living under the grace and mercy of God. So the demons beg Jesus, in God's name, don't torture me. I think this is just hypocritical. 
I think it is, because the very demons who have been tormenting this man pleased with Jesus not to receive the same torture. They fear the same treatment that they've been dishing out. And in our limited human nature, seeing, seeing the pain and anguish that this man is in, no doubt if it were one of us, we would have cast those demons to a place where pain and anguish would never cease. But Jesus, in his wisdom, knows that there will be a time and place for righteous judgment. He will know that there will be a time and place for righteous ju- the righteous judgment of God to reign on the heads of Satan's followers. But the time had not yet come, and, and instead he gave them permission to go into the herd of the pigs nearby. Verse 13 says, He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed into the steep bank, into the lake, and were drowned. Jesus gave the demons permission. See, I think this is the most sensible exorcism we've ever seen. And I'd imagine that if a Hollywood director were to depict this in a movie, it would be the most boring horror movie ever produced. Where's the the holy water sizzling on the skin of the demon-possessed man? Where are the chants in Latin? Where's the scene where the furniture's flying across the room and, and doors are swinging off their hinges? More often than not, the media depicts spiritual warfare to look like a struggle between two great powers. And maybe when we think of the battle uh, between good and evil, we often think that it's, it's hard and it's, it's bloody. Maybe, maybe a series of, of battles back to back where sometimes evil wins and, and good wins. Maybe that's sometimes how we view spiritual warfare. Well, I must tell you that the Bible does not view spiritual warfare in this way. Satan is not equal to or anywhere near the power and authority of God. Like the rest of creation, like the storm that Jesus calmed, like the sea that parted ways in the days of Moses, like the waters that filled the, uh, filled the earth in the days of Noah, Satan... Demons and those who oppose God are subject to his authority. It is only that which God permits them to do that they are able to do. God is sovereign over all of his creation. Though we may never fully understand the paradox concerning the works of the devil and and our sovereign God, we can know and trust that God uses his power and authority to work all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Lastly, Christ's message of mercy. So once the, uh, once the people have seen the demon-possessed man in his right minds, they were afraid. 
And they were so afraid that their response was to, to plead with Jesus to leave their village. And it's not, it's not entirely clear why the people were afraid. And it could be because um, they were afraid of what Jesus would do with his power. Um, it could be the fear of losing more valuable livestock. After all, they did lose 2,000 pigs, which could feed a lot of the Gentile community. But regardless of their reasons, it's clear that they did not know who Jesus was and what exactly he had come there to do. And you might even say that he, he rejected, um, sorry, he might, you might even say that they rejected him without even investigating who he is. However, Jesus, in his understanding and compassion, <clears throat> didn't just, just leave them to their own devices, but he actually sent the demon-possessed man back to witness to his people. Read verses 18 to 20 with me. Uh, it's in Mark 5. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Jesus was, was adamant that the people who had just rejected him were to hear the truth, not of the Jesus who, who controls demons, or of the Jesus that, that came to wipe away their livestock, but a Jesus who saw a tormented man and had mercy on him. A Jesus who used his power and authority not to bring torment, but to bring peace. And when they heard this message of mercy and compassion, they were amazed. Now, I think, I think that's wonderful that, that the people who had just told Jesus to go back to where he came from, now stand in awe of his goodness. The people who had once rejected Jesus are now praising him. See, if you're a Christian here this evening, that is our story. We were once enemies of God, but after hearing the good news of the gospel, we now praise his name. And not because we pursued him, but he sought after us. Though we rejected him, he changed our hearts and stirred our affections for him through the power of his word. And if you don't know Jesus this evening, then I'd encourage you to consider the mercy and the peace that is available in him. See, though naturally we are broken, was sinful, Christ is able to speak into our hearts and he's able to impart saving faith into our hearts. 
See, Christ used his power and authority to bring peace to the storm that the disciples were at the center of. And he used his power and authority to cast out, uh, cast out demons from a possessed and unclean man. And he has the power to save you. Would you put your faith in him? Would you, would you trust that he has the power to forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future? Would you trust that he has the power to bring you peace, regardless of the storm you're currently riding? See, who is this man that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this man that even demons kneel before him? He is Jesus Christ, Savior of the world creator of all things, Lord of lords, King of kings. And he calls you to have a relationship with him. He offers mercy. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers peace everlasting. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the peace that is available in you. I thank you for the mercy that is available in you. Through trials and tribulations, help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the one who is sovereign over all things, the one who stills the waters and commands demons, the one who showers us with mercy, grace, and compassion Help us to keep our gaze fixed on him. And in his glorious name we pray. Amen.